after the year 2020, the Spoiler Room crew thought things were going to cool down. But they are just heating up. Cannon fodder. We're in the shit now. Listen in as this elite group of cinema special forces take on an army of cannon group films. What the hell are we watching? I don't know. I can't take my eyes off it. Prepare yourself for urban action. Kung Fu action. Action, action. There will be car chases, ninja, and of course, movie spoilers in Cannon Fodder. Happy Fodder's Day. Well, Austin, I want to first thank you very much uh, for taking time to talk to us tonight. Um, very, I appreciate the invitation. I've, I've, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I've got your book right here, The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1. Um, now, uh, if you don't buy it, I just I, I kind of want to dive in it because there's like so many different ideas and things <laughs> I'd love to talk about. But first, uh, if you could give my listeners a little bit of a, a background, your background, you know, kind of where you're from and, and you know, what, what you do and, and such so that uh, they can maybe uh, get to know you a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, my background, really, I went to NYU to write about film, uh, film studies. Mm-hmm. And for years, for more than a decade, I've been writing about um, movies for various outlets, um, Under the Radar Magazine being the main one that I've been with for a decade and going strong at this point, but freelancing all around. Sure. And when this project began, I was really looking for a project I could write about in my on my own without really any guidance just something that interested me and something that I could be working on on the side it was right around the right around the time my my first my first child was born and I was thinking back and canon was really when I thought back to it was one of the reasons I fell in love with movies in the first place sure I, I grew up in the era, the era of the video store where every Friday night I would go out to one or one of the two local rental shops with my dad and we would rent, you know, two tapes and that Friday night would decide what we did for the rest of the weekend, what really the highlights of the weekend would be. And my father was a big action fan. So we saw a lot of canon movies, probably too young for younger than what I would show to my children. <laughs> But I'm grateful to him for that. And but yeah, so when it when it came to that, I just thought back. It's like, what, where did I begin? Like, where where did I first really start looking forward to watching movies? And what has stuck with me all these years? And it was, it, I was drawn back to Canon. Mm-hmm. And Canon is a company that, as stories come out, whether they are were they were in DVD commentaries or interviews on online or in magazines or uh, electric boogaloo the great right. uh, mark hartley documentary you would hear these stories and they were often as crazy if not crazier than the movies themselves and i became sort of obsessed wanting to know everything i could and learn everything i could about these movies and as i began working on it i it dawned on me how big the canon catalog is and how much work i had to do and it just kept building and building and snowballing 
Yeah, uh, I, you know, even I, uh, while reading your book, it was like some of these films I didn't realize were canon films because like you, I grew up with them. I mean, you know, my parents, my dad, uh, when it was weekend time with dad, uh, we would go to the video store and rent four videos from the video store. You know, they knew us by first name. It was like Norm. It was like, oh, hey, you know, because uh, <laughs> we'd go there so often and watch all kinds of things like you. What do you think it was about the 80s where kids watched films? They probably shouldn't have for the age they're at, because I'm a dad, too. And I'm like, wow, my parents let me. What, what do you think it is about the 80s that let us let the us do that? <laughs> I, I I mean, I think it was a brave new world. That was really the first uh, decade where you had a choice for what movies you could watch mm-hmm. beyond what was playing at the movie theaters. And I, I, at least I grew up out in rural Ohio, so there wasn't a movie theater near uh, really convenient, but there were, you could rent videos from two different stores or the grocery store or the gas station that also sold fishing baits. <laughs> So you could get videos anywhere. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that might just be excited parents, them getting to watch these things that, you know, being able to watch two movies in a weekend and sure. only pay a few bucks for it. And they, if the kids were around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I think it was just the sort of exposure. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I got a little older. Once I got to middle school age, mm-hmm. I remember we had a video a video store across from from the school where we would get dropped off on the bus mm-hmm. and we would walk across the street, go rent a movie, go over to a buddy's house and we'd watch it in their basement or in the living room or something. And they never cared that. I mean, nobody cared if it was R rated. That was what, <laughs> what I loved. I'm 12, 13 years old and I'm getting to walk out with great stuff like revenge of the ninja and uh, invasion USA. And those are very, formative memories the only thing we couldn't watch was i remember very specifically if there was any tna or anything obviously on the cover right that wasn't allowed you could have horror movies you could have action movies <laughs> where people are getting stabbed blown up but if there was a a woman in a bikini on the cover you you wouldn't walk out of the store with so, it they wouldn't let you so uh no lady chatterley's lover for you no or... <laughs> no last american virgin <laughs> Which uh, I loved your coverage in there and, and you're kind of opening up and uh, talking about the difference between a, a bit about the fine line between erotica and pornography, because I always found that, you know, interesting as well as watching some of these early films like like the two you mentioned, you know, The Last American Version, uh, you know, Lady Chatterley Lover, you had Porky's, you had all these that were it was like, ah. <laughs> they were that fine line and canon seemed to make a a bit of them but of course sex sells right so yeah yeah that was a line that they were happy to step over any chance they could because it's old <laughs> right so well right which i find interesting with canon their approach to selling a film before they actually had it made i mean did you did you once you started digging into it was it surprising to you kind of the stories you found out of just how they did business and how some of these movies were made it it's incredible every every about bit of research i come through come across something where i think i i can't believe this is this <laughs> is this real and talking to some of the people who were involved in these films and these deals, even, even they're shocked that it happened, mm-hmm. but 
Yeah, they were the masters of pre-selling uh, the rights to, to movies, which um, they weren't the only ones who did it. A lot of other companies did it and did it very well. But Canon, Canon really, they that was their main, the main part of their business model. So they would take these films and, you know, you could package them with the, mm -hmm. some very cool artwork, um, you know, a tagline that maybe says something about it. Maybe it was just something that they thought of last second to have added to this piece of artwork. And then maybe, maybe not some talent attached, usually not. Mm -hmm. And they would go to Cannes, they would go to all the international markets and they would sell the movies. They would sell the theatrical rights. They would sell video rights. They would sell cable rights. <laughs> And so by the time they actually made the movie, if they'd made $10 million on pre-sales, if they made the movie for 5 million and it made only 1 million in the box office, it didn't matter. They, they still had a huge profit. And that's really what kept them going for, you know, the first half, first really the half going strong of their history. Yeah, I, I just I found that amazing about them and, and the interviews that you got with the people as well in here uh, were great. I mean, Catherine Mary Stewart, you got the uh, the the uh, writer of Missing in Action, which we're just finishing up our Missing in Action series, which boggled my mind. The story <laughs> I'm like, you know, I always knew those were kind of, you know, that canon set up at least the feeling I have is that it set up all the Chuck Norris memes you've ever heard of folks. Those of you who are of the younger generation, any Chuck Norris meme or reputation I feel was established by Canon and especially these films, but what the heck with missing in action, man, what was up with that? Those movies, they have a incredible, uh, backstory to them. I, that just is another one, like you said, where I reading about it. I'm like, can, is how did this how did this work out as well as it did for them but they had made missing in action to the beginning and actually i have to go back further I, you you actually covered this a little bit in the uh in the in the second episode right yeah of the series but chuck norris had been working on a script with james bruner who's the screenwriter and he'd been developing it and he wanted to do something about the you know the pow mia um Thing that was going on at the time that it was it was talked about in the news and people were wondering whether there were still soldiers being held overseas and what had happened is there was actually a book called mission mia a novel by jc pollock and it had been very popular in the early 80s and it had been bestseller for a while it had been uh it reviewed in all of the sort of combat military pop culture magazines that I'm sure guys like Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris read. <laughs> sure. That's what they bought at the airport. I'm sure when they were getting <laughs> the planes and they did this. So it had a very similar story about this mm -hmm. guy going to save his uh, captured comrades. And that sort of just bounced around. You Then all of a sudden in the mid eighties, you had a bunch of scripts with the same sort of idea and content um, being pushed to Hollywood. That's where you get the, the Rambo entry that's like that. You get Uncommon Valor, um, Missing in Action. But Chuck and James had been working on this script for a while. Um, he wanted to do it to honor his brother. He had a brother who had died in Vietnam. And they Chuck finally got a meeting with Cannon. He goes in. And so James Brunner is just waiting on the phone for Chuck to call him back. And they have this all day meeting and 
he calls him and he says, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that they want to make missing in action, but the bad news is it's not our missing in action script. <laughs> it's this other one that a producer named Lance Hole had brought to him. And so, you know, they Chuck made the deal. They were willing to buy James Bruner's script, but they were shooting the first one and it was going well. They loved working with Chuck Norris. And so they decided to go ahead and make a second one immediately because Canon really it was rare for them to have more than six to eight weeks of pre-production mm-hmm. for anything and then they brought uh Brunner down to when they were filming the end or filming the last scenes of missing in action two to write the sequel and one of the when they went to the production on the sequel they made it and there was only Joe Zito the first mm-hmm. one you guys talked about which is actually really good it is. Uh, for, it is. For, for a missing in action movie. <laughs> yeah. For with with a context for a canon and missing in action film, missing in action one is actually surprisingly very good. <laughs> yeah. And they took it to uh they, they took it to the distribution partners who saw the missing in action two, which was one they had already finished, and passed on it. Hmm. They just didn't want uh, Warner Brothers at the time did not want any part of missing action to the beginning which was at that point missing action one so canon was out of that deal they get the footage back for the second one and they're like wow this is much better and they flip them and put it out themselves and it becomes their second biggest most successful movie they ever had and it was just by pure accident and just flipping the movies so that they're not in chronological order anymore see and and i i find it amazing that it seems like uh canon had that like consistency of almost getting there like when they did find something right that was great but they did follow that but there were like so many where they were like close i mean you had all the elements there yet it just didn't quite hit right <laughs> i mean i mean how do you do that you mentioned it um with the uh was it the uh the, that championship season i was reading about that in your book and you know i hadn't watched the film um, but I was reading about it and I just read the names that are in this movie and I'm like, it's incredible. That's a hit. I mean, that, that right there, you know, that right there, those four stars. Okay. And it was, <laughs> I yeah. mean, what do you think the appeal is with Canon films though? Because it seemed like even the people you interviewed, um, people talk about it more with fondness than with uh, spite or despair or like complete regret. Um, there, there seemed to be some fondness, at least with the people that you interviewed. What, was that kind of the impression you got or what was kind of the feeling you yeah. got with the interviewees that you did? Well, the, the people who have regrets or have bitterness usually pass <laughs> on interviews very sure, politely, sure, sure. but yeah, a, a lot of them just, Canon worked with a lot of young actors. A lot of people got their first real breaks in mm-hmm. Canon movies. A lot of young directors, a lot of foreign directors. Um, they had a very strange sort of split between like very young directors and then directors who had been big in the 60s, 50s, right. 60s, but not really had a hit in a long time. But there, there, there was that. So a lot of people look at these as their formative years how they got in the film business a lot of them continued or a lot of them got out of it but this was when they were young and they were very excited about everything they were doing 
And the other thing is that Canon to them really, they Canon took, took risks mm -hmm. that other companies would have. You would have famously Menachem Galan just green lighting something over just something, it being spitballed at them, like not even having read the whole script and they'd already have a deal for them to, a deal by Monday <laughs> and have them shooting the next Saturday. And it's, you, so there's a lot of movies that got passed on by other studios mm -hmm. or projects that were people were thumping for or my, uh, Chuck Norris had he'd right. taken they had taken missing action everywhere and uh, nobody really wanted to make this movie with him for example but a lot of a lot of people who really wanted to make a movie and Canon was the company that allowed them to do it I mean they asked him to do it for probably half <laughs> as much money as they wanted and right. in half as much time but it, they got the movie made and I, I do I do love talking to people because everybody I've spoken to, even people who had problems with Menachem Golan, mm -hmm. they they'll always do their impression. They'll do yeah. the heavy, thick accent whenever they're talking about him. But they always remember him fondly, and they say that nobody they never met anybody who loved movies mm -hmm. more than he did. And he perhaps didn't understand what would have made a great movie or successful <laughs> movies as much as other people but he was passionate mm -hmm. and they, people loved that about him see and it's interesting you make uh that comment because i think we're used to it by now especially with video on demand and web and streaming and so much that a lot of veteran actors and filmmakers and directors and all those are getting like second chances or rebirth you know they're getting chances to make stuff but back in the 80s that wasn't really a common thing was it i mean it's once their their star kind of faded they were the old school hollywood that would show up to the oscars but that's the only time you'd ever see them right right that's definitely the case and canon took a chance on some of those people and and it's funny we, we talk about video a lot in video stores because that's where we were exposed but um, I was surprised by just how many Canon films were actually Canon films, you know, being young, not paying attention, but also how many actually got theatrical release. I think some people don't realize how many of these actually got it into the theater. Did that surprise you? And what did you find when, when you were digging with these? It, it did surprise me. There hmm. are, I mean, the catalog is humongous and depending on where you decide to draw the boundaries for for my books, I had to stop at just the ones that were produced by Golden Globus, right. or otherwise they were heavily involved somewhere in the production because it keeps going. They distributed so many titles. They bought so many crazy movies. They bought entire film catalogs. Even when they bought Canon from when it was just the independent sort of grindhouse company in the 70s, 60s and 70s, they had a catalog of hundreds of films that came with that. And so it's kind of crazy looking through, you know, their 1981 catalog here and you're just flipping through, you know, 200 pages of movie posters and, <laughs> but it's, it's stunning, but just even the, the Golden Globus ones, that's, I mentioned earlier writing these, I started out writing this book thinking that, oh, you know, I can tackle it in, you know, just a few, few years, but then really sitting down and realizing how big it is. And even at this point, I'm revising the second volume mm -hmm. six years into this project. And just a few months ago, I finally tracked down 
a copy of a movie that wasn't released on video here and they just played in a few theaters in LA and then abroad. And I start Harvey Keitel. It's a Golden Globus movie starring really? Harvey Keitel as, like a, as a drug lord in, in Italy. And I was just thrilled to find my copy with Greek subtitles so that I ended up writing about it for the second book. But it's just how how are we still pulling these things out of strange corners at this point? Is and it, it does it go even deeper than <laughs> than I than I can right. conceptualize at this point after years and years of research? Well, and and the people that they got to work with them too, you know, I mean, it, it just big names that are are big name celebrities are working for this independent film company that just makes quirky films and it boggles my mind too of like you just mentioned Harvey Keitel you know you you got you know Bo Derek who ended up shooting a film Bolero because everybody associated her with 10 and I remember that scene and I also remember Bolero because of the honey scene uh again watched it way too young okay it was on cable you know all right teenager you know but um, it's just you look at who they get you know even bronson and and you know chuck norris who were established all these established names seem to come to these guys i mean was that was part of it just the salesmanship of of these two gentlemen was it their you know, their kind of energy that you think maybe brought these people here thinking that maybe, you know, we're going to make a great film, but possibly linking it to the back of their mind. Well, maybe not. (laughs) There, I mean, there's a whole myriad of reasons why Mm -hmm. people end up coming to Canon. You have examples of these auteurs who just were, you know, spot in their career where they, I think of like Robert Altman, who was coming off of Popeye right. for a few years, was just directing stage plays and wants to make a movie and he comes to Canon to make Full for Love. Or you, um, they, they end up bringing in, they're the, they, they're the first people to give Andrei Konchalovsky, right. this acclaimed Soviet director who won all these foreign awards, comes to Hollywood and that's, that's at a time the only Soviets in the film business are the, playing the villains. Right. And they give him, you know, several films and really take Mm -hmm. him in. And uh, John Cassavetes, who couldn't get anybody to finance their movie, they were gone. For those people, he was just very, very hungry for the prestige. He wanted the, I mean, they were very good at making these action movies, but he was somebody who wanted to win Mm -hmm. Oscars. (laughs) And ironically enough, before he came to Hollywood, before Golden Globus came, uh, some of their movies were nominated for Best Foreign Language Oscar, the ones right. they made in Israel, and they just came here and became instantly reckon, you know, recognized yeah. for their schlock. But other other people, you know, Chuck Norris, who couldn't get the project made, and Cannon was the one able mm-hmm. to do it. Um, Bronson, they they wooed him in. They uh, had had were forced to buy the rights to Death Wish because they announced that they were going to make a sequel. <laughs> and, uh, Dino De Laurentiis ended up forcing them getting the lawyers to force them to buy the rights because he's like bronson's never going to make this movie you know it's uh, why do i need the sequel rights and they ended up making a deal they that he couldn't refuse and then for his career i mean his late career is almost all canon except for the very last few uh movies he made in the 90s and that was i think a lot of that was because you know he's a man in his 60s getting into his 70s and they were willing to make the movies with 
people he liked working with and on his schedule. And it was sort of just his retirement. He had a big <laughs> horse farm in Vermont that he could spend the rest of the year in. And all he had to do was go make, you know, one movie as a either a death wish or a, where he's a alcoholic cop with nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And that paid all his bills. So <laughs> Yeah, it's just fascinating. I mean, I could see why you would, you know, what would pull you into uh, doing this project. And it's just great reading some of these stories. Now, I do notice that the the book has, you have the films not necessarily in chronological order of release, but more of a narrative. What was your decision behind that of putting them maybe in the, you know, uh, not necessarily straight release order because this i will say i i love reading it and i honestly i i full disclosure i haven't read all the chapters yet only because some of the movies i want to watch now that i know that they're canon films and (laughs) and i i don't want i want to kind of go in cold but i've read most of it and i like your approach to it but what was your uh what was it uh you know going into it putting them not necessarily in chronological order like a lot of film guides would do Hmm. well it's where I deviate most from that is with a series or a franchise. Mm -hmm. And the choice behind that was mostly because so much of the crew and the cast carries over. And for something like death wish and that, which I put all, I talk about all the death wish movies in there. um, Something missing in action. I, I think you can tell the, I I think I had an easier time telling the whole story of that franchise Mm -hmm. in one place than had I, divided it up and put you know death wish right. two in that volume dash with death 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 wish three in mm-hmm. volume two and then death wish four and five in the last one and it's that 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 was really what i was mm-hmm. what i was thinking there and then just some of them they they had movies that sat on the shelves for so long so <laughs> for unknown reasons because right. it never makes sense what canon thought was good or bad and what they had to like sort of shove in the closet for a while because they ultimately ended up releasing everything when they needed the money mm-hmm. um so you get this sort of like dump of new videos in like 80 late 86 early 87 because they were desperately trying to get out of trouble but with, with those i i kind of put them where they were in the production mm-hmm. Life cycle just because it makes more right. sense that informs why they were made knowing sort of the context in sure. that way yeah i mean it just plays out with the story because like you mentioned there's a lot of bleed over in these films because they use kind of the same stable of of folks that they had for for many of these films kind of like the indie stuff like miramax and those that would come after them uh you know and, and a little bit like the old film you know, studio model where they would always work with the same actors. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I liked how that played out. And and then your approach to how reading it, I feel like I'm sitting down and just having a beer with a guy who really likes Canon films. Um, <laughs> that it, makes me feel it, so good hearing that. <laughs> it really, it does. Uh, you know, rather because some film guides will be like, oh, well, that came like this and that, you know, it, you know, here's this date and the byline and here, you know, just kind of a dry story. But, it seems like uh, you put a lot of yourself into this book. Was that kind of your approach with when you were writing it? Oh, yes, yes. And and, and thank you for saying that. But mm. yeah, I was, uh, these are movies that I get excited about, I'm passionate about. And actually while writing the first 
the, the first book, I had no idea how many other people, I knew a few other Canon fans online, mm -hmm. but I hadn't gotten too deep into exploring social media and mm -hmm. things like that. And, and then now that the books come out, I've realized that it's a much bigger, there, there are a lot of people who are very passionate about these movies and have the same, same experience background with them as me. And that's been, that's made working on the second one, continuing to work on these books much more fun, <laughs> at least for the, for the, this, these second volumes, Be, or I would say not more fun, but less lonely. <laughs> slowly <laughs> well yeah it's not just me sitting getting excited about something and not being able to get only getting excited about it with my word processor sure so, sure <laughs> so that's yeah I, I, i'm definitely trying to put in put that into it and it's mm. yeah i i love watching movies with people sure and uh as many of these as possible i i would have <laughs> I like watching them, somebody exposing them. If it's not the first time I was watching it, then like mm -hmm. one of the many repeat viewings that would go into the writing process. Can Canon films definitely uh, pull more people are really good for group viewing, especially the action films, you know, <laughs> and of yeah. course, Mr. Voice for the trailer, who I, I love the voice for the trailer. I mean, I don't care what movie the guy, the guy could be reading the in, in you know, and I, I, the name escapes me of who did the voices for most of their trailers, but just he could read the in ingredients off of like a, a bottle of hot sauce or something, <laughs> and it just make it sound exciting. Like, yeah, yeah. Actually, some of some of their trailers uh, later on too in the in the middle period, they actually got Peter Cullen, Mister mm. Optimus Prime, mm -hmm. and those always strike me as funny because he sounds like Optimus right. Prime when he's not even doing the voice and just to hearing him talking about like an Albert Kuhn movie or like what kind of trouble like Chuck, uh, Charles Bronson's gotten himself this into this time. And it's, yeah, the, the, their, their trailers are a lot of fun. That's they, I, I, they didn't do, a, they did a lot of things poorly or, or were misguided and not well, but their marketing, their video covers, their posters, their, the, the movie, the TV spots were mm -hmm. all, pretty darn good they knew how to sell <laughs> their product they knew how to sell a product that maybe even if it was like i had a feeling they knew it was slightly subpar they sure still they knew how to make people you know at least take the video down off the shelf and look at the tiny pictures on the back <laughs> I mean, do you think that's what the appeal is because i i find it hilarious too because it, with uh, growing up without the social media or whatever, you're just kind of in your own little bubble. And I'm like watching these crazy movies with my dad, but you know, I'd go to school and, and tell some kids and they just, it sounds like crap, you know, <laughs> you know it just, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't sound that cool. And now you find this huge audience of Canon films. What do you think it is the appeal? Because I mean, we got Oscars right around the corner. People talk about all oh, really great cinema and that, but yet when you talk to people about like Canon films, people's eyes light up and they get very passionate and start, you know, all these experiences. I mean, what, what do you think it is about Canon films that make people maybe go to those more so than better made films? <laughs> I, I feel like there's definitely a, a comfort. Mm -hmm. I, 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 maybe to compare them to like comfort food mm -hmm. because you know what you're going to get. You, you you know it's not going to be the healthiest or the finest <laughs> cuisine, but you know you like it. Sure. And so you're going to keep 
going back to it. And mm-hmm. I think that's with a lot of B, a lot of B movies, a lot of cheesy movies, whatever you want to call them. I think a lot of that is the appeal. Um, availability is a thing. Um, yeah. Back in the day, back in the video store days, they their tapes were super cheap. They were in all the video shops. They, they always had the big Canon logo on them. For a lot of years, they had the slightly bigger boxes when they were right. MGM was putting out the tapes. And they always had colorful artwork. So you could see those. But they also had sold the hell out of the the cable rights. Mm-hmm. So if a movie only played for two weeks in theaters, it was already premiering on the movie channel or HBO you know, three mm. weeks later, you know, they were just trying to beat that date. So they, they would, pro- their promise to, that it was a theatrical movie was true. And so people, people would watch these movies. They would catch them, even if it wasn't the video store, constantly on cable. Like that, yeah. I know some movies like Last American Virgins, one that nobody went to see in theaters almost, but everybody saw it on, mm. on cable at some point. So, I mean, they're, and they're, and they're definitely, these are, these are the, I think, the quintessential sort of beer and pizza movies that you're not going to necessarily go to the movie theater to watch, but right. you're happily going to bring one home as one of your like three movies or whatever in the mm-hmm. package. You know, drink, watch over a beer and some beer, a couple beers and some pizza and, you know, get, get a laugh, especially if you're watching with somebody. <laughs> yeah, especially some of those action films. Uh, I was part of a podcast where we covered the American Ninja franchise. Ooh. Yeah, now that see that? <laughs> Michael yeah. Dudikoff. Now, that was that was interesting as well, watching that, the different actors, you know, and, and how they brought that together. Uh, you know, it's it just... It is fascinating that people really are drawn to these films because you think they wouldn't be because how bad and cheesy they are. But I think you're right. It's comfort food. You you pick that up. You put that in there. You know what you're getting. You don't necessarily have to focus completely. It Nine times out of ten, not always, but nine times out of ten, it's not something that you're going to end the film and go, oh, well, that was just, you know. I feel like I want to go throw myself off a bridge. Right. (laughs) Right. Even if you didn't like it, there's at least like four or five moments in a movie where you can be like, Oh, you remember that though? Wasn't that like, was that so goofy or was that, was that really cool? It's, you know, you, you, you get, you get enough of at least what you wanted out of them. You get it. You can be assured of a bottom line (laughs) that you're not going to be disappointed. Right. that's the worst. It's like none of these, not many of these movies were great, but not many of them were so bad where they, you, you regret spending the 90 minutes, which is good territory to be in if you're. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, they filled the need. Like you said, I mean, the video boom was definitely huge in the, in in the eighties and people needed content. So they had it. (laughs) That's for sure. You know, I, A film that surprised me uh, that uh, was a canon film, again, uh, just because when I was young, didn't pay attention, was Treasure of the Four Crowns. Because I remember seeing that in the theater with the 3D glasses. Wow. Wow. I'm jealous. I actually, (laughs) sorry to reach off camera, but I I have those 3D glasses. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, but I never never saw it in 3D and I still still regret that. 
but they are, they're restoring it right now. So Kino Lorber is putting it out this summer at some point, which I'm excited for. I'll have to find somebody with a 3D television or, so, or at least the setup for me to do it. Sure. Cause I don't think these little paper glasses I have here will, will work for <laughs> the Blu-ray. Yeah. I, I remember it because uh, I think I actually saw it a couple times because I remember it just being crazy. Uh, and I was young when I watched it, but there, I remember the scene with the popcorn maker where it, the handle comes straight down at your face. I mean, cause they did all the gimmicks. They did all the 3d gimmicks of stuff flying at you. And mm. I don't, I didn't remember much of the story, but I do remember being creeped out at the end by the snakes shooting out of the skull of the, the bad guy after he got caught fire. But what was interesting is you mentioned they mentioned about, you know, supervision and and his way of doing the 3D. And I do remember it being different because they take your glasses off. Unlike 3D today, where you could kind of watch it and still tell where everything is. That 3D, I remember taking the glasses off and you couldn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> you wow. know, but I, I uh, but yeah, that surprised me that that was a canon film. I was like, oh, crap, mm -hmm. that was a canon because I saw that one in the theater. You know, most of these I did see as rental, but I do remember that one vividly. Uh, but... amazing. I'm very jealous. That's, <laughs> that's an experience that I, I cannot wait to have because you lose a lot in the, in the muddy two dimensional, yeah. but yeah, that's, well, it, it... you can tell they're throwing everything they can at some of those moments. Much like Jaws 3D or all the other 3D films that, where you have the composited outline of the 3D component that was supposed to come flying at you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, but it, it's stuff like that that just it, it it's amazing with the, the this this group, what they did, I think. And I I I, I felt the respect in this book as well uh, that you had for this material. Now, was there anything while you're doing your research that like was just a huge like jaw dropping surprise for you at all while you were doing your digging? Like you're like, wow, like talk to someone or something. or You're just like your mind was blown. <laughs> like I said, every uh, every step along the way, there have mm -hmm. been um, things that have really really surprised me there's some there's some stuff in the in the next book that mm. i just i can't believe and then there's things that i hear that i just have to i'm like this 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 can't be real i have to find somebody else who can confirm it and so i'll hunt for anyone else who had mm. any sort of job but just so i have a secondary person who can can back it up and it's not mm. just me repeating somebody something that somebody half remembers but yeah, there's some there's some really stunning stuff. One of my favorite stories to sort of unpack in the research stage in the first volume is the Bolero mm -hmm. history, where the Derricks, Bo Derrick and John Derrick, basically went to war with Canon in the trade papers. And you read these old Variety articles, you read these LA Times articles, and they're just slinging terrible <laughs> insults back and forth at each other, and they've got a movie like they, they they're making a movie together at the same time but they are just saying terrible things like full of f-bombs and calling each other names and it's it's all there in print it's just watching this really really ugly fight that both sides were more than happy to make public, public. And, and of course it ended up being like doing pretty well for both 
both <laughs> sides they came out ahead in the end but well that's that was one of those movies that in in the book that mm-hmm. like i'm not a, I'm, I'm not a big bolero fan i've i've seen it so i mean i've had to watch it so many times for this book and it got harder and harder each time <laughs> but it's, it's one of my it was one of my favorite chapters to write in the, sure. in the book the way it worked out yeah, they, for those out there, that would be a Twitter fight nowadays, but probably. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which which had me thinking, and uh, since I have a canon expert with me and, and seeing, you know, what they did, do you think maybe canon would have been more successful, say, now in the streaming age? Say if they were kind of doing what they did, but now, do you think they would be more successful or would they have been kind of buried with all the other movies out there now i it's it's hard to say i think it definitely they would have been able to they would have loved the streaming rights mm-hmm. and things like that to get them out there but also i i don't know if it's as easy now to sell in so many different territories mm-hmm. because so much has been consolidated you have you know streaming services that would buy the rights or distribution or like labels that would buy it for an entire continent or area. So that would be more difficult. I, I, I would love to think that they would be doing great and still, still going strong today. I I think they would definitely have been able to last a lot longer in the nineties had they not shot themselves in the foot and made some bad investments in real estate. (laughs) But, but yeah, no, I'd I'd love to think Mm -hmm. I business wise, I just don't, I, I would hope that the what they would make from selling to streaming companies mm-hmm. would make up for what they would lose in not having as many different sure. uh, territories to sell it in. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to think that they would do be successful too because I would love to see more canon films. Uh, do, you, <laughs> do do you have a personal favorite? I always hate that when people ask me that question. So I'm going to I'm going to bring it to you. Uh, see what you say. Do you have a personal favorite canon film like one that's just like that's, you know, that's your go-to canon film when you when you kind of want to watch one? With the with the caveat that it would be extremely hard for me to make a top 10. Right. Sure. No, I'm, I'm the same way, but <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I have a favorite for my favorite. I always, uh, that I'll, I'll put out there um, for a few reasons is revenge of the ninja. Oh, sure. Um, 1983, Sam mm-hmm. Furstenberg, Shokasugi. Because to me, it's this perfect blend of, actually like a legitimately great ninja movie. There's some great action. There's some really cool stunts. You think of Shokasugi, like not him actually, but his stuntman like hanging on the top of the van and dragging behind it and people climbing up and zipping, zip lining out of buildings. Um, and of course the incredible, incredible, the last 10 minutes of that movie is just the most badass one-on-one ninja versus ninja battle. It's what... And so it's it's the perfect blend of that, and then the complete canon sort of bonkers right. silliness that you get because you get you know uh, King Kasugi, his Shokasugi's son, who's a young boy fighting thugs. You get his grandmother kicking ass in the dojo doing backflips, whereas an obvious stunt person replacing her in all the wide shots. You have, you know, the gang, the, they have a fight on a playground, on a children's playground, and it's a great martial arts fight. But all of the stuntmen are dressed basically like the village people. 
there's a you know there's a, yeah. a cowboy there's it's it's incredible he fights a guy in a native an offense probably offensive native american costume with sure. two tomahawks at one point <laughs> and it's just that silliness and the just genuine like great action mm-hmm. beat this perfect spot for me and it's a movie that i i grew up renting that was one of my favorites so there's that nostalgic part of it too Mm -hmm. because that you know 10 minute long ninja sword fight on the top of the roof in salt lake and beautiful salt lake city (laughs) is just what you know 12 year old me would have just latched onto and wanted to rent and show to every friend who you know was happened to be watching a movie with me after school that day (laughs) So that's 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 definitely the where I would play, place the flag for my number one. It, w- it would you say canon? I don't want to use the word trendsetter, but it always it, it seems like bigger studios. It's not like they ignored canon. They it looked like they were kind of looking at what canon was doing and going, okay, you guys are doing this and this wrong, but you're actually doing some things right and seem to borrow from them either theme of movies or business practices <laughs> would you say that canon maybe was a bit of a trend set you know kind of they were the experiment and taking the risks like you said and then studios looked at that and going okay we can do that and that but we're not going to do that <laughs> mm-hmm. well i would definitely say that canon followed more trends than they created but mm-hmm. they, they they yeah they definitely did things early on mm-hmm. um and before others others were doing and there were examples where there we had they had stars who had been trying to make it and canon mm-hmm. came and gave the chance and then other come other studios were able to just for swoop in and mm-hmm. you know when these people had real star potential you think of like jean-claude van damme being the biggest one right by the time that they actually put blood sport out and it was this hit and he was you know he didn't speak great english but he had obvious star power you know, Canon had, they didn't have the money then to mm-hmm. make him the offer to just keep going and having, you know, he, I like to think that he, had they not been broke when he broke it big, mm-hmm. that he could have kept them going into, sure. they would have had their star that they had long been clamoring for. And you have, you have others too. So many people just making their first film there and going on you look at judd nelson with uh yeah. making grade he blew up right after that uh catherine mary stewart got a ton yep. she's one of the faces of the 80s yeah and that's all from the apple that's you know Menachem Galan going and pulling her out of the out of the line and the auditions and just seeing that <laughs> and recognizing that and yeah i, I definitely people the other hollywood studios wished they could ignore canon <laughs> but they couldn't because right. canon was doing so much and doing it so prolifically and ambitiously that you couldn't ignore it mm-hmm. you couldn't ignore it i mean even if their movies were like 14 place at the box office numbers for that weekend you had to had to pay some attention well i think it's it's the impression i get is that they made the most noise and in hollywood marketing and all of that is everything that's like a big part of it also almost more so than the movie yeah you know i mean yeah look at blair witch i i, I get flamed and, and i know there's some of my friends who love the blair witch movie 
I was a bit disappointed. But the marketing behind that is kind of canon-esque to where you had yeah. a fake documentary. You had books about the Blair Witch the Theory. So by the time it came to the theater, people flocked to it. <laughs> you know? That's that's a great observation. Yeah, and Blair Witch definitely, I think, has a little bit of a the, the cannonballs to yeah. it uh, and then how they marketed that yeah in canon they would take out billboards and ads you would go to canon there's this great great old footage of people just riding down the street in can and you would see the posters one canon poster after another after another and you know you have the special issue of the hollywood reporter that would come out for them and you i, I have it somewhere around here but you can pick it up and there are 60 pages of canon ads in that thing <laughs> Maybe 30 of those movies were never made, right. but there, once the idea is out there, that it's just building the excitement and that's so they could go out there and they could then collect checks for people who wanted it from territories sure. and distributors who wanted to see these movies. And it's, yeah, they were very, very, very good at the, the marketing side of the game. <laughs> I mean, even to the point where, yeah, they could advertise movies that, they probably knew they weren't going to make. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to make that one. Yeah. I saw a few in that documentary for Electric Boogaloo. I saw a few posters for films. I'm like, that never came out. But <laughs> hey, they sold they sold the rights to it, right? Uh, right. So they made some money and uh obviously not a a uh, uh viable long-term business model but still we get we get this wonderful bulk of films now speaking of bulk of films uh you said you're working on volume two uh what type of which films can we look forward to uh you talking about in volume two if you can give us a little maybe teaser well volume two covers 1985 through 1987 which mm. the way these books worked out i was just trying to divide them by i want to end on years mm -hmm. like on calendar years but just it just the way the way it happened the first book really chronicles their rise you get from when they come to hollywood to you know their last some of their last movies and the what what i cover in there are break in and the mm -hmm. missing in action which are the one and two most successful movies they ever made 85 87 is where they had sort of this creden these credentials built people weren't we're starting to take take them seriously. More people were thinking, hmm, okay, maybe they are doing something right. Maybe we shouldn't just write them off as a joke. And you get some filmmakers coming in. You get like Toby Hooper and these bigger names and they start signing these rights to these bigger films and they um, make making things that are just more, more budget required than what they were good at. And so you get some really one some really fun funky films life force is one that mm -hmm. uh is one their first really expensive movie that they made um you have over the top you have superman 4 masters of the universe when they weren't when they were no longer just five million dollar movies they had a lot of those in there they had a lot of movies that they had already shot in the can that were coming out at mm -hmm. that time but the budgets were starting to grow and the profile was starting to grow and it's also where they start getting into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. um, as fun as these movies are to watch now, none of them were hits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I remember. I remember being actually quite upset. A young Mark watching Masters of the Universe, going, 
what is this? This is yeah, this where's, is where's Battle Cat? <laughs> where's Battle Cat? Where's Ram Man? Where's the, that that kind of looks like Tila? Okay, I can accept that. Who's this guy? What's a cosmic key and why are they on Earth? And Skeletor mm. kind of looks like Skeletor. I mean, Franklin Jelly, he freaking sells the hell out of that role. He's the reason. He's so, he's so the reason to watch Masters of the Universe. I tell people yeah. that. They're like, why would I want? I'm like, you got to watch it for Skeletor. I'm like. He he plays that role like he's doing Richard III <laughs> and, you know, at the Globe. It's it's incredible. <laughs> he's totally in a different movie than everybody else. And he does it through, like how many inches of really goofy looking prosthetics yeah that's which which is just amazing because he's still just so expressive and compelling and just like wow like if this were in any other film <laughs> well and that's the thing is if you look at it and if it was in the hands of someone else that film probably could have been big i mean you had meg foster in it who was perfect evil lynn i mean she had yeah. the look it was like yes those were two great castings it's like if you just would have maybe giving this to someone else to make. Yeah. <laughs> but and it's in the 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 sad thing about so many of those movies is the, it probably could have been better had it just not come at a time right when canon was right really the SEC was looking at them they were you know taking money out of other things they had spent they had gotten this big influx of cash and all of these creditors because of the goodwill they built and based on movies in the first book and they had something like a line of credit that was $600 million or something <laughs> to, for production yeah. budgets. But what does Canon do? What, what do they do instead of putting that money into, they could have made how many movies mm -hmm. with that, with, you know, keeping their old formula, but rather than just putting it into these $30 million movies they wanted to make, they bought up, they bought Thorny MI, they bought, uh, theater chains in the UK. They bought Elstree Studios. And if you're a company that specializes in making one to five million dollar movies, <laughs> why do you need the studio where they <laughs> shot Empire Strikes Back? Right. <laughs> it's just crazy. So it's, I mean, you look at that, they purchased, they made all these purchases right in like early to late summer of 1986. Mm. And they were forced to sell off all these things by, you know, early 1987. Right. And you look at any, anything that was shooting in that window. Masters Universe, for example, there's all these things, all these ambitious plans they had for it. But as it was going into production, in, in the very short pre-production they had, they were being told you have less and less money that you can spend on this. So things have to get pulled out. And then when they get to the actual film itself, that was that's one that if you're talking about stories that just blow my mind, they actually, Canon went in and literally pulled a plug on Master Universe, they were shooting the ending in Castle Grayskull and they pulled, they turned the lights off <laughs> because they got to the end of the day and they're like, we don't have any more money. They had not shot an ending. They was just Skeletor and He-Man mm -hmm. bringing their swords up and the swords colliding and the movie had ended with them the sparks flying and the credits rolling where your hero and your villain don't even fight. And so the director had to, Gary Goddard had to go and beg Cannon just to give him one day, one day. And so he went back onto the soundstage before they ripped everything down. They didn't have many money for a bunch of lighting guys and fancy cameras. And so that's why Skeletor and He-Man in that movie fight in near darkness because he had just had a few floodlights and just the <laughs> actors to shoot the scene. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, that's, 
that's that's talk about uh, stories that so that that's a very fun production history on that one i've oh. gotten to talk to a lot of people about it which has been a blast oh i i bet i bet well i i'm definitely looking forward to volume two and, and seeing that because that is really the realm of ones that i watch because we covered them here on our podcast uh, i forced my friends to watch alan quartermain in the lost city of gold and Ooh. watch uh you know king solomon's minds i love those films i i don't know why i love those films <laughs> i love the music i have the soundtrack to both of them uh you know the, it was goldsmith i think it was for that which mm -hmm. again canon getting a big named composer for yeah a film <laughs> it's like wait jerry goldsmith did a canon film so you know i yeah. i i love this and uh i'm definitely looking forward to uh, the second book and uh yeah i guess uh we'll wrap it up here um anything uh that you want to plug or besides uh, the volume two when can we possibly expect to see it uh is it still working I'm on it uh, really 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 gunning to get it out for the end of the year mm. um the it's written mm -hmm. at this point i'm revising i'm going sure. through because this has been a project that i had initially started writing out of order because i didn't know that whether i'd be covering just my sure. 50 favorite canon movies or you know 150 of them by the end of it so it just some of the chapters that i'd written were written before mm. some of the stuff in the first book and so there's a lot of times where i've talk to people it's been much easier to get people to agree to interviews now that the first book's out there sure. so i've been lucky to talk to people who i reached out to for the first book and never heard back from and have gotten calls or emails just all <laughs> out of blue which has been wonderful but it, now i'm going and adding that information in to mm -hmm. the to the the what i'd written what is probably a few years old of the writing at this sure. point but and shaping it together. And so after that, it's transcription, which hours and hours of interviews that I'll be finishing up transcribing and then actually scanning all the stuff from my collection, all the posters, all the movie covers, press kit stuff. And yeah, so hopefully I want to be able to turn it into my publisher in the next couple months and we'll get it this fall. But the only the only caveat is if I get a call from Chuck Norris and it's like I can talk to you, but it's not until the end of June or something. Like that would put my I would push my deadline off if Chuck Norris is listening to this. If he was listening to your missing in action episode and hears us talking now, and he wants to finally get back to me, I would I would push my deadline for him. You mean yes? Yeah, so the plan is it, plan is for the end of this year. Awesome. He, and if all goes goes according to plan, he, he may not like our Braddock episode because <laughs> that film is is something else. Let me. <laughs> yeah, it's it so wild. There has a I mean, just I, the whole ending with the orphans and the bridge and the helicopters that was. I just that makes the whole movie worth it. It does. It it well. It, I mean it it suddenly makes sense too with, you know, where they mentioned an electric boogaloo where they made Lombada or was it the forbidden dance? One of the two made it eco-friendly to where, you know, so many rainforests we have to save. All of a sudden I'm thinking back to Braddock to where you get this film. That's just this, it seems like a hodgepodge of different like scenes that they had come up with. Cause it, it turns into so many different movies over the course of its runtime. And then at the end it goes, 15,000 Eurasian children are still trying. It's like, what? That, yeah. That, 
that was where you were going with this. Didn't expect this film to have a message. <laughs> well, especially with that soundtrack, those first two, those first two songs in that film too are just like <laughs> it's just crazy. But you know, Braddock, I think it really helps sum up uh, that spirit and the zaniness that is canon. Of, and I think that's why. Uh, we all love uh, those films and I'm definitely looking forward to your next book. And is there somewhere where people can keep up uh, with what you're working on and what you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, A great place is Facebook and Twitter. I Mm -hmm. run pages and the content isn't the same. I occasionally post something on both of them. if It's really fun. I visited death wish locations all last weekend and I was posting it on both, both pages, but I try to do something different for each, each one, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's Canon film guide at Canon film guide on either on either site. And those have been wonderful because it's been a way for me to keep the conversation going, put all the, the bonus materials, I guess, for the book, as I would consider (laughs) it, because I've got the stuff that's scanned in the books Mm -hmm. is probably 10% of my Canon collection. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I've got, and it's fun to be able to show this stuff because obviously the book you can only fit so much in it i'm scared to actually see what the page count for the second one is because it's (laughs) so much larger Mm -hmm. and but i can share that on twitter i can share these things that are coming in things i find and stuff that or stuff that i find now for the movies i covered in the first book that you know i'm finding out after the first book's already been published (laughs) so it's i i have a lot of fun on there Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put links in the webpage for this episode. And uh, yeah, Austin, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Canon thank films. you for the invite. Yeah, it's been, it's been a blast. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. Look forward to the next one. And uh, yeah, you said you, you made it a uh, three volumes total. Yes. So, yes. So the, if I, yeah, I just the third volume. Um, I'll be working on this canon stuff for a couple of years still. And I won't, it'll be a while before I can escape. But, but you, you, you seem to really have a passion for it. And I think, you know, that comes through the pages and yeah, I think people should check it out. Canon film guide. I've got my copy here. My wife got it for me for a present. It was on my wish list, and uh, yeah, uh, very interesting read. So thank you very much, sir. And now uh, we'll just say a uh, good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Hey everyone, we hope you enjoyed our show. If you would like to get access to exclusive Spoiler Room content, stop on by our Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you will get access to VIP episodes, hear the discussions we have before our episodes, and a whole lot more. With your support, we can continue to provide the quality content you've come to expect. Thank you again for listening to The Spoiler Room, where the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies. 